Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, as you probably noticed, we've gone past the midway point uh, of the year. Actually, we've passed it by quite a few weeks, indeed months. Usually, when we get to the end of June, I like to do a kind of roundup of my uh, favourite and least favourite films of the year so far. So, although we've had a whole bunch of other stuff going on, particularly with uh, me and Jack uh, ranking our Christopher Nolan favourite movies and all that sort of stuff, I do want to do the, uh, the, the top and bottom ten. So, this is the first of two podcasts in this podcast i'm going to run down my 10 favorite films released in the uk in the first six months of 2020 so january from the first of january right through to the end of june now obviously this covers um the period of lockdown so some of these films won't have been released in cinemas generally i only do cinema releases but obviously a bunch of uh, cinema releases were only released uh, direct to streaming during the months of lockdown so this is the first of two podcasts in this one i'm going to do number 10 to number one of my favorite films of the year so far and as I said this is everything up until June so some of the films that I've loved since June aren't going to be in there that's why for example things like St Francis which I raved about recently aren't in there so here we go with my top 10 favorite films of the first six months of 2020 and it goes without saying this is just personal opinion and some of these films you'll like some of them you won't and I'm sure that there'll be your own uh, choices of what I should have included and what I should have left out so let me know what you think so here we go starting at number 10. So, at number 10, a film which opened uh, to streaming services on May didn't get a theatrical release in the UK, although it was absolutely due to get one. It had been playing at the Berlin Film Festival, where I missed it, unfortunately, The Assistant uh, by Kitty Green, which is a terrifically chilling and insightful Me Too-era drama about workplace harassment and abuse. In the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, there have been loads and loads of news stories about just how much harassment there is within the film and TV industry. But the really brilliant thing about The Assistant is that it broadens out the scope of its story so it isn't limited to specifics. We don't see the face of the central figure who causes so much grief and sadness and unpleasantness at the centre of The Assistant. What we see is the reactions to his actions. I think it's a brilliant central performance by Julia Garner. I think the film is all the more powerful for just how understated it is. I mean, it has a really chilling edge It is a a really visceral portrait of something which is a horrible circumstance in which our central character is 
constantly undermined is living in a toxic environment in which harassment and abuse can not only survive but are actively nurtured and i think one of the things the film does really brilliantly is it portrays that uh, that toxic culture in which uh, as i said the, the culture of abuse and uh, the culture of mistreatment is not just allowed but positively encouraged to thrive so at number 10 the assistant you know you can always come to us right Come to us first, okay? The last two checks don't have a name or anything. Just the dollar amount. Uh, ignore it. Okay, and will he know what it's for? Yep, he'll know. I wouldn't sit there. Never sit on the couch. <laughs> here and here, initial here, sign there. Do I need a lawyer or something? Do you have a lawyer? What's happened? Where are you going? Um, I was worried for this girl. <laughs> I mean, they were just like laughing about it. Can you deal with this? Hi. Why me? Who was that? Oh, that. Wasting my time. Your mom and I were excited for you. It's a great opportunity. What can we do? On to number nine, and at number nine, a film which I recently discovered was released uh, in the United States under the history The Shadow of Violence, with a poster which made it look like a kind of gritty crime thriller. It's completely not that at all. It was released here under its original, and I think it's much more appropriate title, Calm with Horses, inventively adapted from a story in the Colin Barrett's Young Skins collection. It's a striking directorial feature debut from Nick Rowland, who was BAFTA nominated for his 2014 short slap and it's this really brilliantly immersive tale of tortured masculinity and divided loyalties that pulls the viewer right into the mindset of its haunted protagonist um set in rural ireland and it has something of that kind of west country western flavor of uh, sam peckinpah's straw dogs it's a fable about failed fathers and false families it's unflinching in its depiction of grim realities but it's laced with a a redemptive transcendence that reminded me of films like like Lean on Pete uh, and The Rider. At the centre of it are two brilliant performances by Cosmo Jarvis and Neve Algar. And I think what they managed to do is to tell the story not just through words, but through physical performance. I mean, I'm, I'm always really impressed by films that don't rely on dialogue to tell the story. It's a really, really physical film. Also notable for the fact that it has a superb score by Blank Mass. I do a, a soundtracks show on Scala Radio. I mean, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I've been playing tracks by Blank Mass from Calm With Horses, which is its proper title. And I think that the soundtrack adds so much to the to the intensity and, and the immersion of the film. I think it's a really great movie. I think that the American title is just kind of weird because it sells it as a totally different kind of film, The Shadow of Violence. It's not about the shadow of violence. I mean, obviously you have to do whatever you can to bring an audience in and anything that makes people see Calm With Horses is great but at number nine my favorite films of the year so far calm with horses most people know to stay on the right side of the devers family i'm what you meet if you ever find yourself on the wrong side people say they're trouble the devers i didn't get the joke legs but i say all families have their problems 
I don't want him to be around you. Because of the things that you do. Wise up, Arm. Wise up. Yeah, wise up. You were never like this before, you know that? Before them Devers got their hands on you. We heard about this fella. But we think it's time to finish the job. We have to do it. Loyalty. Please. It's servitude. On to number eight in my favourite films released in the UK between the beginning of January and the end of June 2020. And at number eight, what a thrill to be able to have an Adam Sandler picture in there. I mean, I have said so many times that for an indication of what's wrong with Adam Sandler's less good comedies is the knowledge that he really knows what a great film looks like when you look at a performance in something like Punch Drunk Love. Well, I think Adam Sandler's performance in Uncut Gems is every bit as remarkable as his performance in Punch Drunk Love. The film is directed by the Safdie brothers, who are an extraordinary filmmaking duo. It's set in the in the New York Diamond uh, district, and it's basically got a it's got a tempo to it that is it starts at a at a point of nervous panic and then it just gets worse and worse through the movie honestly watching uncut gems is kind of like having a panic attack but in a really good way when i when i first saw it it reminded me very much of the same sort of narrative logic as that of abel ferrara's bad lieutenant i mean the film has an arc which you can pretty much plot out from the beginning but at the center of it is this fearsome performance by Adam Sander who's thrown himself into the role 100% um, there was a story that the Safdie brothers at one point showed Adam Sander a, a cut of or I think a working cut of the film and he watched like the first 40 minutes of it and he said to them D -d 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 does it stay at this level of intensity and they said yeah and he went great and that's what's so brilliant about the movie. It absolutely grabs you and just drags you along with this central character, this infuriating central character, this maddening central character, who somehow you never, you know, you want to know what happens to him next, even though he's such hard company. Also, another case of a brilliant soundtrack, one of Tricks Point Never, Daniel Lopati's brilliant score, which again throws you right into the world of the movie. I've seen Uncut Gems a couple of times, both times it's left me completely overwhelmed. And as I said, the first time I watched it, it was like a kind of rising panic attack, so much so that the person I was watching the film with had to absent themselves from the room because they couldn't, they just couldn't stand the tension anymore. I think that says an awful lot about the Safdie's filmmaking and brilliant to see Adam Sandler doing such a brilliant performance. And if you haven't seen it, check out Adam Sandler's uh, acceptance speech from the Independent Spirit Awards when he won uh, for Uncut Gems. It is one of the funniest and most pointedly brilliant things I've seen, topped only by the speech given by the Safdie brothers, both of them at the same time. At number eight, best films released January to June 2020 in the UK, Uncut Gems. You like to win, right? This is no different than that. Black Jewel, power with you. This is my fucking way. You think I'm stupid, Howard? You and your whole fucking family. I heard you resurface your fucking swimming pool. I, you know how that makes me feel? Never resurface you think your life is more anything. I don't life. know who said that. I told you about how things were going to go. You like the way things are going now? That's my family. Get the kids out of the house. You having a good time? Yes. Oh, my God. 
This is me. This is how I win. KJ, it's game night. You should be stretching out. What is he, a coach? Nah, he's just a fucking crazy ass Jew. Which brings us to number seven, and it says something about the number of great films released in the first half of 2020, that a film as brilliant as Personal History of David Copperfield is in there at number seven and not at the very top spot. I mean, people tell you, oh, cinema today, it's not as good as it used to be. What a load of nonsense. Look how many great movies have been released so far this year. So, Personal History of David Copperfield, I mean, I think that Amanda Yanucci did such a fantastic job with this. Death of Stalin found unexpected laughter in the historical horrors uh, of a story that nobody would have imagined could have been told comedically. In the case of this, uh, what Anucci does is to take Dickens' endlessly reinterpretable narrative and, and amplify the absurdist, actually very modern elements uh, of the source. Yanucci uh, and co-writer Simon Blackwell managed to get this kind of surreal cinematic odyssey that is really accessible, really intelligent, really unexpected. At the, at the centre of it all is this wonderful performance by Dev Patel. And one of the, the things that's most impressive about the film is that it has a brilliant uh, colorblind casting that enables it to to have a much wider palette than previous adaptations of, of Dickens may have had. I think what Yanucci does is to demonstrate that colorblind casting not only can work, but can really improve the the accessibility and, and the mainstream quality of a film like The Personal History of David Copperfield. I know there were some people who uh, got off their bike about it. Oh, this isn't the, the story that Dickens wrote. You know, any cinematic adaptation is not the version that the author wrote. But there's such joy. There's such enthusiasm. There's such generosity of spirit about personal history of David Copperfield just a, a whole ensemble cast all giving their very best all clearly absolutely thrilled to be in such an uplifting version of this story I think particularly at the moment with everything that's going on you need stories that accentuate the positive and I think that what Amanda Yanucci and his brilliant cast and crew have managed to do with, with their take on David Copperfield is to take something that you know is well known and well loved and has been adapted for the screen many times before and to breathe new life into it to give it something that that's completely original, completely fresh, make it feel like a, a totally modern text that is accessible to all audiences. At number seven, personal history of David Copperfield. What are you doing? Medicine, reviving you. This is salad dressing. Is it? <clears throat> Thank you. Um, Sorry, what was your name? Copperfield. Copperfield? Copperfield. This is Crop with Trosserfield. David Copperfield. Oh, donkey's... This is a donkey freezer! You're a remarkable woman. Very kind. Now, I said that one of the great things about personal history of David Copperfield is how accessible it is. My choice at number six may be seen on the surface as slightly less accessible, but I think it's a really magical movie that, that anyone who loves cinema could get involved with. Um, at number six, The Whalebone Box, the latest fantastically inventive offering from British maverick Andrew Cotting. Now, if you're a, a regular here at Kermit on Film, you'll know I'm a huge fan of Cotting's work. I think nobody is making films like Cotting. I think he, he draws on and builds upon the legacy of say Derek Jarman but he is absolutely his own filmmaker the story here is of a box that 
that apparently was made from the bones of a whale that washed up on the island of Harris in the Outer Hebrides. And the film follows uh, two journeys, one in which psychogeographer Ian Sinclair and photographer Anonymous Bosch join Andrew Cotting on a reverse pilgrimage to take the box back to its, well, let's call it its birthplace. And the other journey is a journey into the dreams and imaginings of the artist Eden Cotting, who is the daughter and muse of Andrew Cotting. So there's these these two strands working together. And yes, there's nothing overtly mainstream about Andrew Cotting's films. They're kind of like cut-ups and collages of sound and vision that throw ideas and places and stories and and happenstance and chance connections together. If, like me, you've followed Cotting's career, you'll know that that journeys have always been a big part of his movies, going back to something like Gallivant from the 1990s. His films blur the, the borders between realism and fantasy, between fact and fiction, between documentary and invention, and also between psychogeography and, and actual physical geography. There, there really is nobody else making movies like Andrew Cotting. The thing I loved most about Whalebone Box, however, is that you can read it in a number of ways and what the film is about and what its story is about. For me... I thought it was an absolutely beautiful portrayal of the love between a father and a daughter. And I found that the film had an emotional heart that really engaged with me. And I think actually with any audience, I mean, yes, it's adventurous and and yes, it's kind of, it's an art house independent uh, production. And yes, it may initially seem off-putting, but at the centre of it is a universal love story that I think anyone can connect with. And if you haven't seen it yet, I would advise you to check out The Whalebone Box as soon as possible. It's a wonderful film. And it's number six in my list of favourite films released January through June uh, in the UK in 2020. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we're into the top five, and at five, an icily satirical, psychological, sci-fi-inflected thriller from Jessica Hausner, who's the, the Austrian writer-director behind Lords and, and Amor Fu. Uh, 
This is Little Joe. Now, I have to say right from the beginning that I know from speaking to other people who've seen Little Joe, it's not a film for everyone. I've seen it three times and it's definitely a film for me. I hope if you're a coming on film listener, you can find it in your heart to give it a go. It's a kind of fairy tale inflected yarn about a genetically engineered plant that may or may not be infecting human minds. Um, Jessica Hausner says that it's a parable about what is strange within ourself. And one of the things I love about the film is it has a brilliant ambiguity. As I said, it's about this plant which is genetically engineered to make its owner feel happy. It releases some kind of chemical that effectively triggers the mother hormone. And in fact, the plant is named Little Joe after the son of the woman who essentially invents it, played rather brilliantly by Emily Beecham. I was talking to Ben Wishaw recently about working on uh, Little Joe and working with Jessica Hausner. One of the great things about Jessica Hausner is that her films are fantastically well designed. There's a kind of Kubrickian level of attention to detail. Nothing is in the frame by mistake. Everything from the design of the environment to the colours of the clothes and the hair and everything you see is all really carefully coded. And I love that uh, as a film critic, watching a movie that just seems to, to be a complete world, something in which the creator of this world has thought about every single possible detail. But also what I love about it is that the film has the kind of paranoia that you get in uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, in which people start to believe that the people around them have changed and yet they look the same, they seem the same. How have they changed? And it raises the question that if, if, uh, if a plant changes you in a way which is so imperceptible so you don't seem changed have you actually changed at all uh i think the film can be read in a number of different ways as i said i think that emily beecham is absolutely brilliant in the in the central role she has this red hair which mirrors the red of the plant little joe also incredibly inventive use of music by tejito which sometimes seems so jarringly weird and out of place as to almost kind of uh you know shock you out of the film itself i think it's great some people have described it as cold and chilly in a way that they found impenetrable not me i've seen it three times and every time i've enjoyed it more at number five the brilliant little joe fear can distort our perception of reality if i made a mistake then it's my fault it seems that this has all been a bit much for you. He frightens me. You're a good mother. But which of your children will you choose? Good night, little Joe. At number four in my list of my favourite films released in the UK between January and June uh, 2020 is the terrific feature debut from Lena Matsukas, who's the Grammy award-winning director of Beyonce's Formation video and whose uh, television credits include A Master of None and, and Insecure. This is Queen and Slim, which was a film which at one point looked like it was going to catch a number of awards nominations and yet somehow ended up kind of going under the radar, which is a real shame. I don't think it was seen by as many people as it should have been. It's now available for home viewing. If you haven't seen it, I absolutely urge you to check it out. It's kind of a, a new twist on familiar outlaw riffs that you can trace back through Badlands and, and Bonnie and Clyde and Abu Dassouf. Uh, at the centre of it, we have uh, Daniel Kaluuya, who was Oscar nominated for his brilliant performance uh, in 
Get Out and Jodie Turner-Smith. Both of them are absolutely brilliant in the leads. I said it's it's essentially a kind of outlaws on the run tale, but it's played out against the backdrop of racially divided uh, America. It is brilliantly scored by Devontae Hines, aka Blood Orange. Once again, it's always important to to remember the way in which music has such an impact uh, in movies. And I thought that Queen and Slim did a brilliant job of immersing the audience in its kind of unfolding road movie fable. Uh, It was very surprising to me that some people weren't as struck by it as I was. I first actually got wind of the movie because my daughter had seen it and she said she was just knocked out by it. And she said, you know, you have to see it because it's, you know, it's such a terrific movie. And I was working through the movies that were up for BAFTA nominations and Queen and Slim came up and I just thought, okay, this is definitely going to get nominated. And, And then it didn't which is such a surprising thing because it's such a bold uh, first feature. It's visually stylish. The performances are really terrific. It reminded me sometimes of uh, things like, I th- was thinking of uh, Celine Siemar's uh, Bond of Fee, uh, Girlhood. Um, occasionally, I was reminded of the Hughes Brothers' uh, Dead Presidents, uh, which is a film which I've talked about loads of times and which didn't get anything like the acclaim uh, that it should have got. But the thing that I really like about it is that it was striking and bold and original and universal. It ha- absolutely has a you know a treatise and a theme and a, a and a message, and yet it is a very universal story that's told in a way that I think anybody can watch and appreciate and be drawn into. It never feels polemical. If you haven't seen it, do check it out at number four, Queen and Slim. What if God wanted me to die and I messed up his plan? I don't think that's what he wanted. How you know? I just think you were meant to be here. I'm scared. It's all right. I'll be brave enough for the both of us. I'm taking you dancing. Let's go. You're willing to risk getting caught so we can dance? Hell yeah. Don't worry. You're safe here. I just want to let you know that I'm okay and that I love you. I want a guy to show me myself. I want him to love me so deeply. I'm not afraid to show him how ugly I can be. Thank you for bringing us this far. Thank you for this journey. Police! No matter how it ends. What do you want? I want to ride or die. Can I be your legacy? You already are. So we're into the top three, and at number three in my list of my favourite films released in the first half of 2020 in the UK, from the beginning of January to the end of June, is Eliza Hitman's brilliant Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Um, I really liked Eliza Hitman's previous feature, Beach Rat, which I thought was great. This is uh, a drama that manages to blend the gritty authenticity of a documentary with the poetic sensibility of of pure cinema. Um, it's a really relevant and contemporary story dealing with uh, an urgent subject, the, uh, the matter of uh, reproductive rights. And yet it does so in a way which, again, as I was saying this about Queen and Slim, never feels preachy or polemical. In fact, this feels like a perfectly observed story about female friendship. It, it's a coming-of-age story with road movie inflections. Um, 
It stars uh, Sidney Flanagan as a feature first timer. She's brilliant as Autumn, who is a 17-year-old from Pennsylvania who discovers that she can't get an abortion in her hometown without parental consent. And so she has to travel to New York, and obviously she doesn't want to go on her own. And so she is accompanied by her more outgoing cousin, Skylar, played by Talia Ryder, who's soon to be seen in Spielberg's uh, West Side Story. The film is brilliant for a number of reasons. Firstly, it has incredibly naturalistic performances that you absolutely believe in. Secondly, as I said, it deals with with an urgent and really important subject, but does so in a way which never overshadows the drama itself. I mean, in many ways, this is more a story of friendship than it is uh, about anything else. But one of the things that's really intelligent about the film is that that, uh, that title never, rarely, sometimes, always refers to a series of questions that our central character is asked when she gets to the clinic in New York. And there is a brilliant scene in which, when she's giving answers to those questions, her silence often speaks much louder than words. I mentioned already uh, in this top ten how much I I admire films in which the story is told not verbally, but through everything else that's going on. We, we, We visually see what's happening with the story. In the case of Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, it is a brilliant um, example of a film in which the storytelling, the most important parts of the storytelling, it's not what characters say, it's what they don't say. Applaudits to French cinematographer Hélène Louvard, who, who did such brilliant work on Beach Rats, and here manages to capture moments of really intense intimacy in brilliantly uh, unobtrusive fashion. I think the film could be described as kind of a you know the melancholy magic of Schlesinger's Midnight Cowboy and the the humanist artfulness of the Dardem brothers it's perfectly pitched and sensitively played and I think it's truthful powerful and profoundly moving fair from a filmmaker at the top of her game at number three never rarely sometimes always you're going to New York what are you doing there seeing family and stuff I used to be on the street who came with you today? My cousin. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. I'll figure it out. This area's closed. Can I sleep here? Where's the rest of the money? La, 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 la. I want to make sure that you're safe. La, 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 I know this is hard. you some questions they can be really personal just answer either never rarely sometimes or always so we've reached number two in my list of my favorite films released in the uk in the first half of 2020 and i have to tell you that i basically wrestled with the position of these two films and Honestly, either of them could be at the number one spot because they're both completely brilliant. But at number two in my rundown of my favourite films released in the UK first half of 2020 is Bong Joon-ho's masterpiece, Parasite. 
What is there to say about Parasite that hasn't already been said, not just by me, but by everybody else? I mean, firstly, how brilliant that when Parasite won the Oscar for Best Picture, it not only made history in terms of the Academy Awards, but it also really, really annoyed Donald Trump, who complained about it winning the award and wondered why we can't have something like Gone with the Wind instead, which frankly tells you everything you need to know about Donald Trump. Parasite was recently reissued in a black and white version that was actually first unveiled at the Rotterdam Film Festival when I was there doing a podcast with uh, Jack Howard for Kermode on Film. So I've seen it several times in colour. I've seen it a couple of times in the black and white version. Personally, uh, I think the colour version is my favourite version. It was really interesting watching the black and white version because Bong said that one of the things that it did was it drew your attention to the surfaces. When you take the colour out of the picture, what you see is the surfaces. So you see the matte scuzziness of the household, which is at the bottom of society's ladder. And at the top, on the top of the hill, and also at the top of the economic tree, the house, which is all glass and shiny, reflective surfaces. You don't see the colour, you just see the surfaces. The story is about uh, two families one of which inveigles its way into the household of the other family. But the title, Parasite, is clearly uh, ironic because I don't think the parasites at all are the family who inveigle their way into the other household. I think it's to do with the parasitical nature of the socioeconomic structure. One of the things I love most about uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite is, in fact, that you can read it as a ghost story. You can read it as a, a story about haunting, as a story about people living in the same space but somehow in different liminal spaces. I did say when I first reviewed it that the best thing to do is to see Parasite knowing almost nothing about it. Now, obviously, because there's been so much press and so much attention given to it, and rightly so, it's hard to imagine that anyone doesn't know anything about it at all. But I still think it's one of those films in which the central shifts and changes are so gasp-inducing that the best way of seeing it is without knowing what's coming next. I've been a huge fan of Bong Joon-ho's for ages. Um, recently, uh, Simon Mayo and I were talking about the, the Snowpiercer series on television. And he said, well, you, you just keep reviewing the movie. Because I kept saying, well, you know, whatever else you think of the series, it's not the movie. I had the great pleasure of introducing the movie um, as part of the, the opening of the John Hurt Centre. We showed it on the big screens because it didn't get a big screen release here in the UK. I've also introduced a number of Bong Joon-ho's films on BFI Player. If you get a chance, go over to BFI Player I do introductions there every week and it's really well worth checking out but Parasite is as near to being a perfect film as anything I have seen in recent years with the possible exception of the film which I have in my number one spot and so at the number one spot and I'm pretty sure you've guessed this already and as I said it was a it was a real struggle to decide whether it was this or Bong Joon-ho's Parasite but at number one in my list of my favourite films released in the first half of 2020 in the UK Celine CMR's absolutely brilliant portrait of a lady on fire now if you're a regular here you'll know that I'm a huge fan of Celine CMR's work whether it's her directing her accidental trilogy of youth which is Water Lilies Tomboy Bondafi Girlhood or her script writing on Clobaris's brilliant animation My Life is a Courgette everything she does seems to me to be somehow touched with magic In this, her fourth feature as writer-director, she ventures to a new world of the late 18th century, 
And uh, we first meet the central character, Marianne. She's teaching life study in Paris to art students, one of whom stumbles upon the titular painting, the portrait of a lady on fire. And this then leads us back into the past, into the story of her being sent to a remote Brittany residence to paint a portrait of a former convent girl whose mother wants to send the painting to a Milanese nobleman if he approves her daughter will then be married. And we've learned at the very, very beginning that this has already defeated one painter because the subject does not want to be painted for reasons that become apparent during the course of the of the movie. So what then happens is this kind of battle of wills in which there is a sort of agreement arrived at about painting the picture. But then what happens is it becomes a treatise on looking on the way in which we gaze on the female gaze versus the male gaze there's a central question if you look at me who do i look at cmr herself has described portrait of lady on fire which won the screenplay award at Cannes, as quote a manifesto about the female gaze, which makes it sound terribly kind of bookish and dry, and it's anything but that. This is a film that is vibrant and thrilling and passionate and deals with really heightened emotions, but keeps them absolutely rooted in the firm soil of social realism. There is a subplot about a a young maid, Sophie, who was dealing with an unwanted pregnancy, and this subplot finds uh, CMR at her most quietly radical, not just confronting but also depicting a taboo subject and its representation refusing to look away and finding strength in sorority i think she is an extraordinary filmmaker i think that what she's doing is really groundbreaking and yet it's done in a way that that seems accessible that seems even mainstream i think anybody could watch portrait of a lady on fire and find something in it that touches them and 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 engages them emotionally it it's such a brilliant film even talking about it now i'm stumbling over my words because when i start talking about it I just find what I want to do is stop talking about it and go and watch it again. Sometimes as a film critic, it's very difficult because obviously, you know, film is a visual medium and most films can't be described through words. The very best films can only be described, I think, through visuals. So let me just leave it there by saying my favourite film, the first half of 2020 to be released in the UK, I know it played in other territories before that, is Celine Ciamar's absolutely brilliant portrait of a lady on fire. Vous me reprochez la suite. Mon mariage. J'ai un nouveau sentiment. Le regret. So there we go. That's my very personal and completely subjective list of my favourite films released in the UK in the first half of 2020, from the beginning of January to the end of June. Just to run that list down again, uh, at number 10, The Assistant. At number 9, Calm With Horses. At number 8, Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler. At number 7, Amanda Yanucci's brilliant personal history of David Copperfield. At number six, The Whalebone Box from the Maverick that is Andrew Cotting. Into the top five, at number five, Little Joe from Jessica Hausner. At number four, Queen and Slim, a film which I don't think got the attention it deserved. At number three, Eliza Hitman's brilliant Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. 
At number two, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, whether in colour or in black and white, it's a masterpiece. And at number one, Portrait of a Lady on Fire by the genius that is Celine CMR. Now, I know that that list probably won't match up with your own list, so let me know what you would have chosen. What are the titles that you would have included? What are the titles that you would have left out? Remember, the rules are strict, the beginning of January to the end of June, so nothing released in July or August, please. You can get in touch with me through Twitter, at Kermode Movie. Also, go to our Patreon page, where there are videos and a whole bunch of extra stuff that you can't get anywhere else. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, keep watching the skies, and for the next podcast, my least favourite films, released in the first half of 2020. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.